Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome John Liu to the podcast. John is a Chinese-American filmmaker and ecologist. In 2017, he set up Ecosystem Restoration Camps, a worldwide movement that aims to restore damaged ecosystems on a large scale. He is also a researcher at several institutions. He's visiting fellow at the Netherlands Institute of Ecology of the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences, an ecosystem ambassador for the Common Land Foundation based in Amsterdam. Thank you very much, John, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. So now, John, you've an extensive experience in in the world of media, in in the world of research. And um, can you maybe just give us a little bit about your background and uh, what has been your journey and what your focus is on right now? Well, um, I went to China in 1979 when I was quite young. I was, I think, 26 years old, and I had the opportunity to help open the CBS News Bureau. Then I worked for CBS News for 10 years. Then I worked with Radio Televisione Italiana and Zweites Deutsches Fernsehen and a few other other, uh, networks from Europe, mainly. And then I, by that time, I had my own studio and was just helping to help, help these networks. And then the, the world asked me to film the baseline study for the rehabilitation of the Lus Plateau. And this is the cradle of Chinese civilization. It's an area, huge area, the size of France in the upper and middle reaches of the Yellow River. Actually, the pilot project for for the rehabilitation of the Lus Plateau was 35,000 square kilometers, approximately the size of the Netherlands or Belgium. And when I went there, I had just been filming, you know, for 15 years, the rise of China from poverty and isolation and the collapse of the Soviet Union and international terrorism, all that sort of stuff that they love on the existing networks. And then I found I was alone on a mountaintop looking at this devastated landscape and, and it spoke to me. I, I saw this and I, after I began to do this, the other people on the project were like the top scientists in freshwater and in soil and in botany and in biodiversity and so on. And so when I started to do this, I thought, well, this is more fun and more interesting, and, and it's more important. I, I realized that the politics, and you see it now, especially as the system spasms all over the world, that the politics are about human ego, about hubris. And what I saw in the, in the Lus Plateau was this is about human history and human consciousness, and it's about eternal time and, and infinite fascination in, in creation and in, in the, the 
creation of the atmosphere, the hydrological cycle, the soil fertility, the biodiversity, and that these systems have been continuously renewed over evolutionary time. And, And why don't I know more about that? And so this made me just drop journalism and use the skills that I had gained in covering the news to begin a long-term inquiry into ecological function. So I study and have been studying function and dysfunction in terrestrial ecosystems for now going on three decades. And as I've, as I've been doing this, um, I have found that no one remembers Deng Xiaoping or Brezhnev or Kim Il-sung or, you know, any of these people that I covered, but the ecological systems will determine the quality of life for all generations to come. And this is something which is so much more important and so much more valuable than either economic thinking or political thinking that it has captivated me. So that's, that's me. Fascinating. Fascinating. Now, um, I know you were involved in an, uh, a wonderful initiative, an ecosystem restoration camp. and I would like to talk to you about that uh, in due course. Now, there's no shortage of worrying environmental crises of, of, of different kinds facing us. And I'm just wondering what in particular is on your mind and keeping you awake at the moment. You've been involved, closely involved in seeing this up close for, as you say, several decades. Where, where in today, in light of where we are today, where the political response has been, where the individual response has been, how, the awareness we now have of you know what's happening, some of the non-linear responses and tipping points and things like that. Just wondering, what is it that you know that worries you the most? Well, I mean, I try not to worry, <laughs> uh, but. Of course, there are things which are extremely concerning. So that is definitely a real thing. Climate anxiety is real. But I think climate anxiety mainly comes from people who don't know very much about it because they hear that this is a terrible problem. It could lead to the extinction of humanity. Well, I mean, human civilization as we know it is definitely threatened. And what we are seeing is a systemic dysfunction on a planetary scale. So often people talk about carbon, carbon disequilibrium, egregious emissions of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. Well, that's, you know, Al Gore called that a, uh, an inconvenient truth. Well, it's also a partial truth because it's really an indicator of how the systems which emerged through evolutionary time have been disrupted by human activity. So the the human activity has damaged these systems and one indicator of what's going wrong is this egregious emissions of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. But in, in fact, 
in terms of greenhouse gases emissions, CO2 is, ends up being like 26% or something, whereas high altitude moisture that's driven into the upper atmosphere because we've devegetated large areas of the planet and we've created thermic drafts which push the moisture into the upper atmosphere instead of allowing it to aggregate in, in, and condense as clouds and precipitate as rain, then you know, when, once you start to follow these things, it is extremely complex, but it's not exactly like you can't understand it. So I think we've made what, what we've, what, what I guess worries me, or it doesn't really worry me, what, what I notice, what I recognize is that human consciousness is focused on other things than the fundamental truths of how the atmosphere, the hydrological cycle, the climate regulation, the amazing biodiversity, how life on earth was, came about and how it's constantly filtered and continuously renewed by multidimensional symbiotic systems that self-organized through living, the, the symbiosis of living organisms over 3.8 billion years. So to me, now, having spent years and decades studying this, it's infinitely fascinating. When you go down this path, it's a, it's a wonderful path to go down. You're going to see how, what, what is, you're going to see if fundamental truths about life on earth, and we are living. So I'm living now, but I will die. And the fact is, while I'm living, I want to see the infinite beauty that is life on this planet. So this makes me excited and happy. It does make me sad to realize that hundreds of generations of human beings have killed each other and stolen each other's land and said that some people say that they're more powerful and better and more deserving of material things and, than others. Well, yeah, that's kind of terrible. But that is also something to be pitied. The people who are expressing those things are retarded and they have not reached the cer a certain level of consciousness that is actually necessary for us to survive. So we're at a point where it isn't really about sustainability, it's about survival. So if you, if you massively disrupt climate regulation or the ocean systems or the atmosphere, you don't have air to breathe or you don't have water to drink or you don't have food to eat or you're, you're everything, the air, the water and the soils are polluted with toxic substances. Well, I don't think that's so good for us, you know. We're actually bivalves. We're acting as bivalves in some ways. We're filters. We take in the water. We take in the food. We take in, you know, the air, and then we recycle it. And so whatever pollutants are in there, they're going into our organs. They're disrupting our DNA. They're disrupting our glandular secretions.
this cannot be a good thing. There will be consequences. You know, so, so learning about this and understanding this makes it kind of, you know, the more you know, the more you see how terrible this situation is. But also you realize, well, the people who are, who are failing to evolve to the point where they understand this, they need to be pitied because they're, they themselves are filtering the pollutants that they're spewing. You know, their children's DNA will be, you know, everything about this is not, you know, it's a terrible thing. So but you say that, you say that, that's interesting, but there are some people who would argue that some of the people, uh, shall we say, I mean, if you want, want to just look at it through the lens of the 1% will be flying and, you know, from helipad to helipad in these secluded and in... Yes, they, they're snorting cocaine on their way to their yacht or something like that. But, you know, this is, this, they, they are to be pitied. Yes. They are yes. to be pitied. Well, this well, is a yes. tragedy. Now, you said, uh, you just before we go on, you mentioned this, the hydrological cycle. You mentioned this uh, water as a vapor moving higher into the atmosphere. Very quickly, why is that? What, what, what are the implications of that? Well, I'm flying to Egypt tomorrow, so this is definitely on my mind. Because if you look on the satellite images of the Earth, then you will notice the Sahara and you know, across northern, all of northern Africa, all of the Middle East, most of the Mediterranean, and all the way up into Central Asia, looks like a complete ruin. Well, that's the cradle of Western civilization. That's the, the, where the first agriculture began between the Tigris and Euphrates. That's the, the Garden of Eden and the land of milk and honey. Why does it look like a, a, a ruin? Why does it look like the moon? Why do you stand there and the, the terrible winds blow sand over the ruins of once great civilizations? Because they didn't understand what I'm talking about. They didn't understand the evolutionary processes that caused the constant accumulation of biomass, of organic material, and the constant differentiation and speciation of, of genetic material into to the potential, to the potential of infinite potential variety in genetics. So they didn't know that. And they, they worshipped um, golden calves. They were, they were dazzled by shiny objects. They believed that things they made were more valuable than life on earth and of course that's not them that's us that's our ancestors that's all people that's like if the purpose of life were to go shopping yes now i want to come back go forward in a moment come back to the restoration but i'm just interested in you talked about this question you talk about this question of understanding and it seems uh, that in terms of, should we just at least look at climate change and climate science, that there's been a model 
of this kind of cognitive deficit. If only people really understood, if, if they really understood what was going on, if they understood what was at stake, and if we made it clearer, and if we were, our science was better, then we'd be able to galvanize people. People would just automatically understand and want to take action and you know deal with these problems. Now, uh, some people argue that that's not <laughs> right, and that actually what you're starting to that that's, that some people will and and the, the mood has changed, and people are that the you know the climate denialism is is less uh, a, a less less uh, present strategy, even even in a, a way of looking at things, even in America, but that people are the certain uh, sex sex section of the population are uh, support are accepting maybe more that climate change is happening, but actually the response is maybe towards not what we would think, maybe towards ideas of climate nationalism or climate fascism or ideas around closing the borders, energy independence, and not necessarily the kind of ideas that, that you know a lot of progressives maybe are, are thinking about with a you know uh, more the government involved in the economy and managing uh, you know this transition to clean energy. And, and, and I guess some kind of ideas that are embodied in versions of the American, uh, of the Green New Deal. So I'm just wondering, do you, where, how do you parse that, the, the difference between, you know, how, how important it is, the understanding, and then how important is it in just terms of taking action and recognizing that there are people who have different sets of values and, and, and may see and interpret the, the, the data in different ways? Well, it's, um, it's not a question of opinion. I mean, it's not my opinion that biodiversity, biomass, and accumulated organic matter filter and in, help to infiltrate and retain moisture, and that vegetation isn't part of a photosynthetic cycle that created constantly filter and continuously renew the atmosphere, or that this is essentially climate regulation. So <clears throat> what, what's happening now is that for hundreds of generations since we left the garden, if you look at the Western cosmology, then, um, then the people have pursued materialism and they have turned their back on, on the eternal beauty and the, the, the wonderful, amazing synergy and the miracle of life. So in, in doing that, they have put their faith in false gods and they have pursued wealth. They think they're getting wealth, but actually they're gathering material possessions to themselves. And as they do that, then they realize, oh, this isn't bringing me satisfaction. So maybe I'll need more. <laughs> so you get, try to get more of that. So how much do you need? You know, I mean, when you're taking your helicopter to your yacht and you're avoiding seeing the, the lumpen proletariat down there, then basically you think you're above all this, but at the end you die. And so then what happens? You're dying clutching your material possessions. And your children don't believe in anything anymore, and they become nihilistic. And maybe they commit suicide because they think it's all meaningless. And 
So it, it doesn't make any sense what, what's going on there, but that's the way it is. And when, the reality is that the economic systems, these extraction systems, which are not understanding these natural systems, are not creating wealth at all. They're creating poverty. They're creating huge poverty for billions of people around the world. So to call it wealth is ludicrous. It's, it's the accumulation of material possessions to a tiny minority of people, and it's mass poverty for billions of people at the edges of large degraded ecosystems. Yeah. So let's just tell the truth yeah. about these things. And when we do, we go, oh, well. <laughs> and when we look, so, so I, I would rather get onto the positive side. So yes. what, what I've seen is <clears throat> that... Um, you can restore large-scale degraded landscapes, including landscapes which have been degraded over vast areas and over enormous historical time. So this means that if we come to a new understanding, then the landscape is reflecting our consciousness. So if it's massively degraded, you have to ask the question, oh, is that a, is that a, you know, a necessary outcome? Is that an inevitable outcome? And the answer is no. <laughs> you, yeah. it, it, it reflects what we understand. So yeah. if we, with our understanding and our ability, our science, our, our compassion, our empathy, our, our strength, our power, then we say our intention is to restore this to ecological function. Guess what? We can do it. If, we, if that's our intention, there's no doubt in my mind that we can do it. I've seen it happen all over the world. It works. I've documented it. Can you talk a little bit about the restoration of the lowest plateau in China and what are the lessons here? Well, you know, there are many, many lessons. So the, the, the lowest plateau was fundamentally degraded and so this is a, there are many clues. I would call it um, ecological forensics. So the study of this is like ecological forensics. The crime has taken place. The body is laying there. You're looking around for the, for the weapon and, and you're trying to understand the, the motive. And so obviously in this, in the, in China's case, in the China's Lus Plateau, it's a German word, Lus. So in the Lus Plateau, um, what happened was that the civilization emerged there because it was so wonderful. It was so fertile. Lus is a windborne sediment that, was, that is created by the movements of glaciers high in the Himalayas and deposited by wind on the plateau below. And it's minerally extremely rich. Imagine granites um, being rubbed and turned into powder and that powder building up until it's 100 or 200 meters high. That's a long time. So that's a lot of dust. But it, so it's pure minerals, all the minerals there. And then in order for it to be fertile, it has to have organic material and microbial communities, which then are the pathway which release the nutrients from the minerals and make it available to biological life. 
So over evolutionary time, as each generation of life grew up and died, it's the organic material increased. So you have this base layer of subsoil, which is loose, and then you have the dead bodies of everything that's ever lived being being um, processed into into soils where the which is essentially this this layer the pedosphere is the term it's on top of the lithosphere which is the geologic materials and this this pedosphere is the habitat for microbial communities fungal nets and insects and worms and this sort of thing so all of all of these living things are essential so they're not like icky bugs and you know what are they doing they're essential to the creation of soils to the release of mineral nutrients to vascular plants which are you know higher forms of life compared to say lichens or mosses or you know like that so this this succession the emergence of of microbial communities and then the differentiation and speciation leading to this infinite potential variety in genetics have given you this perfect place so in this perfect place comes the chinese the han chinese actually all the different uh, races are around there, the, the Kazakhs and the Mongols, the Uyghurs and the Kyrgyz, the, the Khitan, you know, so they're all there, but the Han are really hardworking, clever, and they're sedentary, so they build settlements. Whereas a lot of these others are, are plains people and they move around and they kind of have... <laughs> You know, they, they go over the mountain and steal women and horses. So the, the, that's quite, not quite the same as building up a legal system. And, you know, and, but as, as the Chinese build their castles and their, their administrative things, and they're, and they're also wearing silk robes and drinking warm rice wine while writing poetry to the moon, then they become very powerful. And they also learn, you know, all these martial arts that you see in the movies and all that. And then they, they become very powerful, but they don't know this essential thing that the, that the life and the wealth and all the things that they're using, they're cutting down the trees to build their palaces. They're, you know, destroying the soils to do their agriculture. And then ultimately it's, ruined. They collapse the ecological system. And then they, the, the wealth or the, you know, the power, let's say the power, uh, they move away and make the capital in Beijing instead of, and then start to desertify that. So, so this is a very typical thing. I think there are more than 20 civilizations which have done the same thing around the world. So looking back, I mean, if you don't learn the, the lessons of history, you're destined to repeat them. So what the Chinese did in, in the last, late, last part of the 20th century and, and continue to do now is that they began to understand this. 
they began to understand the role of biodiversity, biomass, and accumulated organic matter in naturally regulating hydrology, soil, and climate. And they have been massively increasing these things throughout China. And I went to document them. And when I saw it, I realized, oh, this is, well, besides infinitely fascinating, it's complex and interesting, but it is also understandable. They're making thousands of interventions because gravity works. So when water falls on the earth, you can follow how the water is going to disperse. And when you have no vegetative cover, no canopy, then the raindrops directly hit the soil. And so does solar radiation. Well, it turns out if solar radiation directly hits the surface of the earth, the surface of the earth's temperature is 15 to 20 degrees centigrade higher, at least. I found 45 degrees centigrade. That's how big a temperature differential that you can have by human impacts. And when you, when you have these kinds of temperature differentials, you have to realize, well, what, what does that do? So what's the physics of this? Well, it causes the moisture to go up into the higher atmosphere, but it also determines the wind speed, the wind direction, and vortex activity. So that's, the, you know, that's all these enormous weather patterns that we're, we're seeing more of. You, you have pictures with multiple three giant hurricanes in one satellite picture. You couldn't have even seen that 10 years ago. You know, it didn't exist 10 years ago. We created that. And we better learn, we better learn what this is right now because this is only going to increase if you, once you start looking at it. And that's why all the, let's face it, that's why all the science, climate scientists are terrified. But the climate scientists are not professional communicators. So they can't explain it, maybe, in the way that people can understand. So they, they put out their, their data, and they're also tentative. They're afraid to make conclusions because they don't want to be wrong. But we need to, we, we need to be absolutely explicit now, and we have to look and say, what are the implications of the data that we see? And the data that we see now are that there's methane release from melting permafrost, that the ice sheets in the Arctic and the Antarctic are melting, that uh, the, the glaciers are endangered, that the oceans have thermal expansion, inevitable changes in sea level rise, that, you know, the, the and, and, and CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions are an indicator but they're the you know they're part of this massive systemic collapse system. So let's stop talking about individual things and realize that holistically, and especially the thinking about nationalism or climate fascism or whatever that is, you know, there is no possibility. These are global systems. Nobody will be okay if this if this goes down. <laughs> Yes. So we we need to we need to be very very aware of what's happening, and in 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 terms of what they did, they did infiltration and retention of moisture at scale. So over vast areas, thirty five thousand square kilometers, they engaged the entire population in in integrated watershed management. 
which means that you start at the top of the mountains and you and you control the movements of water throughout. And this had been lost for a very long time. And immediately when you do that, you start to infiltrate water. You can just move one rock in when you know where the where the stream flows. And if you do that to thousands and thousands of places, then you're definitely going to infiltrate and retain huge amounts of moisture. And then and then the next step is to return the vegetation. And when the vegetation comes back, then you're going to in, in, infiltrate and retain even more moisture and your surf, surface temperatures are going to be lower. And then when you understand the role of biodiversity and you don't decide to plant everything and you allow natural succession in biodiversity, you get a succession of pioneer species, which give way to the second levels and the third levels. And, and at some point out there, 500 or 1,000 years from now, you have a climax equilibrium. So this is what they started to do, and this is what they're doing, and this is what's making them the leaders in, in the recognition. And when you just talk about, say, like, um, well, renewable energies, we make windmills or solar panels or electric cars or something. Well, that's all abiotic. Those are all abiotic. You have to use energy and extract materials and formulate That has nothing to do with climate regulation. Climate regulation is about the symbiotic relationships between multidimensional living systems. So <clears throat> that's, that's where we are with this. And the, and the Lus Plateau is a very good example of a very large scale modern thing that if human intention shifts away from going shopping and it's to restore ecological function, then our children and future generations will have a life. So that's why I'm obsessed about this. That's why all my activity goes to this. Well, that's fascinating. Can you just maybe briefly dimensionalize the scale of the change? Are there some measures that show this is still, a, as you say, it's, it's, it's uh, I guess, early stage in development in some ways when you look over, you know, biological timeframes, I guess. But are there some measures that you think show or can reflect what was achieved? It's huge. So within 10 years, we knew this was transformational. So, I mean, if you have, if you have no infiltration and retention of moisture and your surface temperatures are enormous then you're going to have dust storms and you're going to have all these crazy impacts. You, droughts, long-term droughts. Look at this. California, Portugal, South Africa, Australia, wildfires. So when you, when you understand this, you realize, okay, we're going to have to mobilize. We're going to have to massively increase infiltration and retention of moisture on a planetary scale. So this is not just like, oh, let's do it in our in our country, it, we have to do, you know, we, we live on the earth. We are humanity. We are human beings. We're not consumers. And, and there are no boundaries when you look at it that way. We're from the earth. So this is what we're required to do. And when we understand that and we see that this can happen, then, we, you know, you have to tell the truth about it. This is doable. There are no other solutions to climate regulation. Climate regulation is coming to us from 3, 3, 3, 3.8 billion years of evolution. 
And so the, you know, we're not going to create a machine that can hoover up carbon and everything will be okay. It's, it's a, it's a self-organizing symbiotic relationships between life forms that have done this. And we need to look at that miracle and process how wonderful this is and be in awe of that. That's fascinating. Um, now, how much do you think we know about the practice of restoration? I mean, to what extent, you know, is, you mentioned that some of these are traditional uh, approaches, and I know also indigenous communities have uh, kept, you know, many of uh, these kind of approaches. Is, do you think that there is uh, a lot more to be learned? Is the, is the magnitude and the potential of the kind of impact that we've already achieved, is that something that we could expect to multiply if people were focused on understanding and researching and, and all that, the whole area of res- restoration? Well, I, I think we have to be focused on doing. So we have to, we have to do what we know works now. Right. And we have to continue to research because there's more to learn. Yes. Okay. But when it comes to doing, who are the main actors that are doing in the world? Because you've set up um, you know, this organization, Ecosystem uh, Restoration Camp. And uh, I mean, I'd like to talk about that, how, how that operates. But as you say, this is a global, uh, a global shared problem, a global shared ecosystem in a sense. Um, and therefore, we need you know, massive action. So do you, can you give us a little bit of an overview to what extent uh, governments are focused? Are there multilateral treaties and organizations working on this? Uh, or, uh, you know, even, even uh, companies or social enterprises or NGOs just, you know, get a sense a little bit before maybe then talking in a little bit more detail about the, the particular, your organization and, and, and what you're trying to do there. Yes, I, I think um, the Society for Ecological Restoration, S-E-R, um, is, has been studying this, and many people who understand this have gathered and aggregated there. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature has a large number of people. The World Resources Institute, um, WRI, has 60 people focused on this in, I think, 10 landscapes or 10 countries around the world and the common land foundation where I'm the ecosystem uh, ambassador has over 2 million hectares in, in uh, restoration with private investments through the aggregation of farmer cooperatives and the and high wealth individuals and families uh, supporting this uh, there's a regeneration network. There's the, the United Nations has declared the decade from 2021 to 2030, the decade of restoration. And what, what you were alluding to is the ecosystem restoration camps uh, movement. So it's, there's a foundation and it's um, stimulating the creation of ecosystem restoration camps. So people all over the world can learn how to infiltrate water, how to build soils, how to propagate and plant out mainly endemic plants and trees. So, and, and then there's, there, there are many sort of efforts which are like reforestation or tree planting. 
I never talk about that. I talk about revegetation and I talk about holistic measures because we don't just have a deficit in forests. We have a deficit in grasslands, in wetlands, in peatlands, in, in edge systems along the coastal regions and alpine areas. So we need to look and see the evolutionary outcomes and, and work as much as we can to make those happen. The meadows, the pollinators, the need for the insects and the birds and the wildlife, we need to rewild many parts of the world in order to have this natural systems. And that's not impossible. We just have to do it. So wherever we've done it, it works very well. Now, um, the ecosystem restoration camps movement, the reason I like this one, because I've, I've been engaged in sort of every type of restoration, but the, the ecosystem restoration camps means that everybody on the earth can participate and it's owned by the people. So this is much better than trying to wait for the authorities or the institutions that exist to magically decide to do this because the people, as soon as they understand it, they can say, yes, we have a secret handshake. I'll tell you how it goes. My earth is your earth. My heart is your heart. My spirit is your spirit. We are working together. That's how long it takes for somebody to become an earth restorer in the ecosystem restoration camps. Now, they, from that, they have to learn how to do it, so they need to go to camp for a while. And in camp, they'll be working with other people and learning these things. And when the first camp, we wanted to make the first camp, people, we didn't even tell them where it was going to be, and they, they made their own research and then started to show up in Spain in the Altiplano and say, here we are, we want to build a camp. And so people we never heard of before started showing up to do this. Now there, I think there are 17 camps that are registered. There are like 20, 30 more uh, emerging all over the world. So pretty soon there'll be hundreds and thousands because this is the way we, what the scientists are telling us at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is we have maybe a decade to shift the, the direction that humanity's going. Well, shall we wait around and go go to the United Nations meetings and then they finish their meeting and they haven't finished the document. So they say, well, we'll meet next year in Bali and, you know, another 30,000 people will fly somewhere else to talk about it. And we wait another year. No, let's go restore the earth. As soon as I realize this, then I've, I've been more satisfied and more happy and more positive and more optimistic that, yeah, we could, we could restore the earth. And tomorrow I fly to Egypt where, where for instance, the second community has been working for 42 years and has a great deal of information. And we have a new, a new um, project design to restore the entire Sinai. And, and then that is designed to bring back moisture into North Africa, the Middle East and the Mediterranean. So that's a, that's a fundamental understanding of ancient changes, how human impact altered the cradle of Western civilization. So the Lis Plateau is the cradle of Chinese civilization, and 
Now we're looking at the cradle of Western civilization and saying, I wonder if that could be restored. That, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Where do people fit in? Because the, 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 some projects talk about in the rewilding, you know, uh, having having just just the, the the wildlife and having the you know the ecosystems themselves and not having human involvement and so forth. With uh, the ecosystem restoration camps and so <laughs> forth, uh, and, and generally trends in this area. Well, if we don't if we don't re-regulate the climate. And if we don't remove the toxins from the soil and the water and the air, then we're, you know, most of this will be moot. <laughs> um, but if we do those things, then people need to live in the ecological lands. We need to go back to the garden. We need to live in beauty together with wild things. We don't need to fear the, other life forms and kill them and then create abiotic systems. I mean, I look at Hollywood movies and what do you see? That their vision apparently of the future is an, is a toxic landscape in an abiotic system where highly armed people run around killing zombies. Um, and that's, that's a, you know, kind of a valid, vision of what they imagine, because if they don't see the miracle of life, if they don't appreciate, value, love nature, and understand that we're breathing air, drinking water, and and eating food that's grown in, from the soils, and that any pollutant that's in any of these things are filtered through our bodies, then that's what it's going to be. So well, yes, as you say, that the, the kind of degraded landscapes that we are we are living in today are a you know outcome of uh, of, of human ignorance and greed, and presumably what you're talking about that is you know is also a, you're talking about a call for a change in consciousness. Yes, if we if we approach this from consciousness and generosity, we most definitely get a different result. That's one of the things that you see at the Sekem community in Egypt. S-E-K-E-M, Sekem. It's easy to find. And what they have done is 42 years ago, uh, an herbal researcher in uh, like a, a studying herbal remedies uh, in a pharmaceutical company in Europe, he moved to Egypt. He was Egyptian and his wife was Belgium, Belgian. And the two of them took their family and just went out into the desert. And when they started 42 years ago, you couldn't see if there was nothing there. And now it's a beautiful place. So with, with, with empathy, with love, bringing people together to work together to restore these degraded landscapes, it definitely works. It's, there's physical <laughs> evidence all over the place. I have documented this and witnessed this in every continent. So it most definitely works. You talk about behaviors aligned with evolutionary trends. What, what are they? What, what kind of evolutionary trends are you talking about here, John? Well, the evolutionary trends that I mentioned earlier, that microbial communities began to increase and then then the 
life forms differentiated and speciated. Those are evolutionary in nature, and they, they continued, and we are a result of that. So human beings are a result of that, that evolution. And we, you can ask, ask uh, neurophysiologists about our brain, and you'll find there's reptilian brain bits, and there's you know, higher, higher consciousness. So, you know, look at our fingers and our, our toes. Look, look at how much we, we share 90 some, 97% of our DNA with chimpanzees. So, I mean, the, the evidence is all over the place. It's huge. So this evolution is a miracle. So what's, what's interesting about this is the, the biblical or the sort of Judeo-Christian Islamic cosmology says that human beings emerged in paradise. Well, so does evolutionary theory. <laughs> you know, human beings emerge at the very end after there's an oxygenated atmosphere, fresh water, tremendously huge soils, fertile soils, and tremendous biodiversity, and every, a lot of things are edible. So it's paradise. And then we start to cut it down <laughs> because we believe the things we make are better than paradise. Well, it's just a mistake. We made this mistake in all of our religious teachings, not just Judeo-Christian Islamic cosmologies, but all of these are telling us. And the indigenous people around the world, they said all life is sacred. <laughs> they protected the mass, the huge megafauna buffalo running across North America, the huge megafauna in Africa, the Amazon, these areas. So... What, what did we do? The Western civilization, which created that giant desert, then spreads its ideology and, and through, conquer, through, through conquering these other people, killing them through genocide, through slavery. Come on, let's just tell the truth about these things. And, and so now you have a nihilistic worldview that's been spread and all these people want to go shopping because they don't, their, their way of life, ancient way of life in many cases has been destroyed, except where they're fighting back, where they're saying, no, this has got to stop. And, and weirdly, in all these places, there are prophecies that at some point when the white people or when the, the, the conquering peoples get it together and stop this and become more conscious, then paradise can return. That's what their prophecies say. Very interesting. Very interesting. I'm mindful of the time, John. Tipping points, something that this nonlinear system, something um, that we, 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 we're hearing a lot more of uh, in, a, in, a, in a negative sense, in the sense, in, a, in, a, in, a, in not in a negative sense, but more in, in a worrying one where, where degraded ecosystems, uh, you know, degrade uh, in a non-linear or, 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 or much more than would be expected or reach, a, a, what they, I guess they call a tipping point. I guess there's positive tipping points as well. And maybe just finally, if you talk a little bit about what that might look like in this kind of restoration vision that you have. Well, I think we have a choice. It's our choice. We can either restore the earth or not. And the science is so clear now that if we don't restore the earth, the consequences are, are devastating. They're, they're catastrophic. So if we want to avoid the, the, worst, the worst 
consequences, then we, 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 we need a tsunami of consciousness and everybody needs to understand. And that's why we think that the ecosystem restoration camps movement, ecosystemrestorationcamps.org, everybody should join this immediately because you own it. It's, it, it's the people's. It's for the people, by the people, of the people. And this way, we can all participate in restoring the earth. And we can learn how to do it. We don't have to sort of, whatever happens, this is the best case. So there there is a negative feedback loop that could lead to collapse of civilization as we know it. And boy, you better have the ability to infiltrate and retain moisture and and control the water and you better be cooking and sharing and being in love with everybody in your community and taking care of this. Otherwise it's going to be hell. And so, you know, and, and maybe we do enough. We, we have a tsunami of consciousness and we, and we fix this and we save opera and, and ballet and great art and the museums and, and culture. But, we're going to have to live in a new way, in a way that doesn't pollute, that doesn't destroy. And in order to do this, when we look at what is really valuable, what's more valuable than the oxygenated atmosphere and the freshwater system? We used to be able to drink from the rivers. We should be able to drink from the rivers. Why can't we? We can in 500 years, in maybe in 100 years, if we try really hard. So this has to be the intention of human civilization. We have to restore all the soils. We have to eat clean, organic, nutritious food. All of that is possible. We have to stop making the mistakes. So I I think the way I feel about it is we have to have compassion for those who don't understand these things but we can't wait for them. We have, to, we have to work together with everyone who understands this because each of us is going to die. And before we die, we ought to enjoy and, and be fascinated with the miracle of life. And we ought to make sure that the next generations to come have the same opportunity. So that's what this is about. Ecosystem restoration camps belong to everyone. It's a way to train and teach everyone and to participate together in saving human civilization. That's an essential vision, such a powerful vision. How do, what, what, what does it involve, involve finally to get involved? Uh, how do you get involved? And what does that actually entail, getting involved in the ecosystem restoration camps? Well, I think the first thing that we can do is if you, if you think this is a good idea, and that we should have ecosystem restoration camps, you could join as a supporting member. We, we usually, we ask people to share whatever they want. So there are people who give one euro or one dollar a month, but there are people, many people give 10 euros per month. That's 120 euros per year. So if we get a large number of people doing this, then it's easy to build camps. We know how much camps cost. If you need a kitchen, you need composting toilets, you need tools and seeds, you need tents, and you need, you know, sanitation facilities for for everybody and laundry facilities. And then you need trainers and training. And and 
now imagine that like this is this is starting to happen. So we we see that the first camp was in Spain. The sec the, now in in Mexico the second camp. Now in California there are five camps, and there'll be twenty or fifty soon. And then in South America, and then in Africa, and India, and Thailand, and all over the world, the Middle East. So the camps are proliferating, but how can we really help them? When we need to have the ability to have trainers to help those people who haven't had this experience yet, and we need the ability to to uh, take maybe like in, we're in Somalia where a camp is forming. We need to actually take the Somalis out to Egypt to go to the second community to train them, and then we need some containers filled with the camp infrastructure to send into Somalia because it's too dangerous for us to go in. But the Somalis have nowhere to go. So if they don't, if they, if we give them something to do to restore their earth, they want to create camps all over Somalia, hundreds of camps. Well, that's great. You know, having, having all of Somalia being restored by the local people, that's exactly what we need to do. Because otherwise, they're pirates, and they go out and try to board tanker ships, or they're they're mi trying to migrate to to Europe, and then they die in the Mediterranean Sea. Fifty percent of them die in the in the, you know the the some of the countries are trying to turn them back, or not picking them up. You know if their if their boats start to sink, good grief! You know are we human beings now? You know, so, and, and it's not like there's no food or it's impossible to feed everybody on the earth. We can do this easily. But we need people to be able to grow food in their own place. So how are they going to do that if they have no water or they have no soils? And we, when we look at these places, usually, I guess, if you don't know anything about it, you say, well, that's done. Stick a fork in it. There's no, it's finished. But actually, if you look at it from my perspective, I know how to restore those areas. We increase biodiversity, biomass, and accumulated organic matter and restore the hydrological cycle, the soil, and the vegetative cover, and then you can grow your own food there. So that's better for them. So what we have here in ecosystem restoration camps is the lowest cost, most effective way to restore the earth, to engage everyone on the earth. And we've, we've had now three years of, of trial and error and we know much more about this. So the more people who join this, the more camps there are. So you can join it by supporting with as little as 10 euros per month or less or more. I mean, there are people who give 20,000 or 50,000 because they see the meaning of it. But, you know, we need to restore the earth. So it's a big task. And that task is not up to an individual or up to a single institution. It's distributed. It means that all each camp is autonomous, self-organizing and self-governing. And that the people there, but it means that the whole movement can send trainers, can send knowledge, can send money and tools and, and equipment and things to help them. And the more that we do that, the better off we are. If we put these camps surrounding the refugee camps, then instead of having scorched earth after these huge, huge refugee camps are, are able to, people are able to go home, 
it'll look better than it did when they came because there'll be giant forests and, and they'll be feeding themselves and, and they'll have something to do instead of turn to the, these terrorist groups. And if we put it next to the migrants and we, we, we stop their migration and they can stay in their homes and restore their, their, their lands or the homeless in all countries. I, I, I was in America. There's so many homeless people. Can they do this? Of course they can. Does that help them? Yes. Think about the post-traumatic stress disorder veterans. They need another mission. They're perfectly suited for this. They'll heal. They'll be redeemed. So, you know, to me, ecosystem restoration camps is, a, you know, the first time I felt after decades of working in ecosystem restoration that, yeah, we could restore the earth because the only agency that can do it is humanity. That's a great vision. John, what's next for you? Well, I fly to Egypt tomorrow. We're, we're working with the Egyptian government to try to stimulate this. There's a transition of, of big industrial groups to make their industrial activities be regenerative instead of degrading. So you have to, you, you know, like if you have a bulldozer or you have these big devices, how is that going? You know, well, if you're just pushing around the earth and you don't even know that inside, you know, if you, I, I like to think of like this little community of microbes are down there having dinner or something watching TV and then a bulldozer comes in and just wipes them out. Well, how would that be? You know, so you need to understand that there's huge living communities and our life is dependent on their health. Why would we destroy these places? So we need to, we need to transform industry, transform consciousness, transform the economy. We, we're, we're acting as if the purpose of life is to go shopping or that material, abiotic material things are more valuable than the life systems that support us. Well, it's just false. We need to get our values right. When our values are right, then our, our monetary systems won't be fiat currencies, which are meaningless, where you have, you have uh, extraction, manufacturing, and buying and selling things, which is sort of a real economy, but speculation between the cost price and interest-bearing debt is a bigger part of, of the economy. Well, if we have ecological function as the basis of wealth, then our monetary system would, would realize that, would, would reflect that. And when our monetary system reflects that ecosystem function is more valuable than things, it's impossible to pollute and impossible to degrade. And the perverse incentives which have allowed all this to happen are gone and we're incentivized to restore all degraded lands on the earth. Well, that's exactly what we need to do. So, you know, to me, it's like I, I can't, I, you know, I go to sleep, I wake up, that's all I think about. So uh, thank you very much for asking me these questions because I think it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I want to go places and, and tell people, but I don't want to rant. And people are like, what are you talking about? I don't understand you. But if you ask me these questions, I'll tell you and I'll tell everyone. <laughs> this is what I'm thinking about. Well, thank you so much, John, for doing all of that, for, for, 
for answering all those questions and sharing your vision and your passion. My pleasure. And I wish you all the best with your ongoing work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.